Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich. Today we continue what now seems to be a series of conversations on the history of Afghanistan. And my guest for today, publisher and author Vijay Prashad, writes this, quote, For a hundred years, the Afghan people have struggled between two visions of their society, one that saw the need to reform society through women's emancipation and the advancement of ethnic minorities, and the other that saw the future in the past and insisted on the most conservative views being dominant in social life. The Taliban is the apotheosis of the second part. That is from an article that has just been published online in Frontline. Frontline's a national magazine in India. Vijay Prashad is the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Describes itself as an international movement-driven institution focused on stimulating intellectual debate that serves people's aspirations. He's also the author of such books as The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. His latest book is called Washington Bullets. He joins us over Zoom. Vijay Prashad, it is a great pleasure to welcome you back to this program, sir. It's always great to come to any show, and particularly your show, which has the words letters and politics combined. Yep. <laughs> it's been that way for quite a while now. Uh, you, you write this. Afghanistan, and I didn't know this, Afghanistan had four constitutions, 1923, 1964, 1976, and 1987, that enshrined equality between men and women and provided a pathway to widespread social reform. I I didn't know that. Well, it's not surprising you didn't know that, Mitch. Um, In the 19th century, in the 1840s, the British Empire attempted to invade uh, Afghanistan, and they went in there and they got their nose bloodied. Um, The Afghans fought them back. It's tough terrain, but, you know, The British won in 1878, so it's not like an impossibility. Uh, But having been defeated by the Afghans, they came back and they put forward two, what I think of as great myths about Afghanistan. Um, These are enduring myths. They endure till today. The first enduring myth is that the Afghans are barbarians and they are savages. And they are noble savages, but savages. So even Rudyard Kipling, in his great poem, on the east is east and the west is west and never the twain shall meet. That poem is set in Afghanistan. And the never the twain shall meet is because his adversary, the Afghan, is noble, but he's a savage and is not uh, therefore noble to the rational European and so on. So there is this one great myth of the savagery of the Afghan, which prevents people from knowing things like the great history of social reform in Afghanistan, and therefore that there were these constitutions and so on. The other great myth is that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. I very much detest that phrase because, you see, what that phrase suggests is it suggests that somehow, um, you know, the Afghans, uh, they cannot have history because any, firstly, they're barbarians, they can't make their own history. Secondly, if anybody tries to impose a history on them, they will fail. And this is an error because in 1878, 1880, the British did win the second Afghan war. They were defeated in the third Afghan war in 1919 and so on. But Afghanistan is just another country, Mitch. It's not some special place in the planet. But these two enduring myths have prevented us from seeing what I would say, and I know it sounds naive or silly, but it prevents us from seeing the real history of Afghanistan from the perspective of the Afghans, not the perspective of, you know, the British or the USA or the Pakistanis or, or, or the Russians or anybody. 
but from the Afghans, and they have a story to tell us. Talk to me about Afghanistan after winning the third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919. Two individuals you write a lot about in your piece at Frontline, Soraya Tarzi and Amanullah Khan. Yes, so uh, Amanullah Khan is the king who takes over from his father Habibullah. They come from the Durrani dynasty, a very long dynasty that rules uh, from the 18th century. Uh, but uh, Habibullah, the father, was an open-minded man, not necessarily a liberal person, but open-minded. It's in actually the father's reign that these exiles, these people who had been exiled out of Afghanistan by the British victory in 78, to 80, 1880, British, as a consequence of coming to power, making Afghanistan surrender its foreign policy, there was an exodus of intellectuals and others. And in the Ottoman Empire, in particularly, Mahmud Beg Tarzi uh, grew up there. He, he experienced the Tanzimat reforms, the great reforms of the Ottoman Empire. Um, he experienced uh, and became friendly with Jamal ad-Din al-Afghani, one of the great uh, reformers of the Muslim world in the 19th and early 20th century. Al-Afghani is a colorful character. You know, he's all over the place in the Muslim world. Tarzi marries a woman by the name of Asma Khayum, who was born in Damascus. They returned to Kabul in 1911. Their daughter is Queen Soraya, uh, is Soraya Tarzi. And Soraya marries the, the, the son of Habibullah, the king. It's a little confusing, I grant you. But the point is that this couple, this young married couple, King Amanullah and his wife, Queen Soraya, influenced by what's happening in the Ottoman Empire, influenced by currents in India, that is British India, influenced by what they understand is taking place around the world. They open a girls' school for education. Um, Amanullah Khan opens a dynamic where he questions polygamy. He questions the age of consent for girls, child marriage, you know, and so on. And they put all these things on the table and they get solidified in the first modern constitution of Afghanistan, which is in 1923. You see, this opens an entire almost century of thought and action in Afghanistan to change society. And so, for instance, when the communists come in the 1960s and 1970s, the communists don't come as out of, you know, the planet Mars or from Moscow. They are the heirs of this long tradition of social reform that opens up as a consequence of the Ottoman reforms of the aristocratic liberals like Amanullah. Amanullah only lasts a decade, Mitch, that's the other thing, is that there's another side of history in Afghanistan which we should not underestimate or consider to be not important. And that's the side of history of the, of the more conservative aristocrats, of the big landlords, of the, some tribal leaders, not all of them, but some tribal leaders, and then of course the clergy. And they form a historical block. So Afghanistan is essentially caught in a struggle between two historical blocks, uh, one that faces towards a kind of advance of social life in Afghanistan, improving the conditions, and the other that says, no, we have to remain um, as we are. So this great clash 
This is an endogamous clash. It's a clash inside Afghanistan, drawing from elsewhere in the world. Uh, but you see, what happens is very quickly, and, and I want to say this before I, I stop this part, but 1927, uh, you know, King Amanullah and Queen Suraya visit Europe. And they visit India and other places, but also Europe. And in Europe, Queen Suraya, who is quite a magnificent person, uh, you know, took off her veil. She ate with uh, men and women at the dinners. Uh, she had a hand kissed by the president of France, President Gaston. He kissed her hand and so on. And there were photographs taken of all this. Well, the British, smarting over the defeat in the third Afghan war in 1919 and understanding that Amanullah had created a kind of entente with the Soviet Union. You know, he exchanged correspondence with Lenin, um, wanting to undermine Amanullah and Queen Soraya. They released the photographs in a very malicious way in Afghanistan saying, look, she had a hand kissed by a stranger. She ate with men and so on. And this inflamed a certain kind of public opinion. And you can see then that foreign forces, imperialist forces, the British and so on, had no problem cozying up to fundamentalists, not in the 1970s when, you know, we remember this happening, but in the 1910s and 1920s. And, and again, King Amanullah's father is Habibullah, who defeated the British in the, in the third Anglo-Afghan war. Um can, can you tell me a little bit more about the Ottoman Empire at this time? This is also towards the end. Of, this is also the end of World War One when the Ottoman Empire would would come to an end. But tell me more about the influence of the Ottoman Empire in Afghanistan this period of time, and perhaps a little more about a man that you you mentioned, Afghani. Yes. So. Um you know, there's a major period of, of reform taking place from Istanbul all the way out to Kabul. And I think sometimes another great stereotype that blocks us from understanding these things is, this, is that the vision of the Ottoman Empire as an empire in decline. Uh, you know, the literature of decline, the sick old man of Europe and so on. The decline of the Ottoman Empire prevents us from seeing what's happening. Because after all, once the Ottomans were defeated in World War One, uh, in the Great War, um, there was an amazing efflorescence of activity, you know, led by people like Kemal Ataturk and others and, uh, and so on. And they were came with a kind of nationalist agenda. Now, let's not uh, also paint over the fact that there was the genocide of the Armenians conducted in this period. But nonetheless, there was a great deal of, of modernist activity taking place in Turkey and in Iran under Reza, uh, Mohammad Reza and others. You know, uh, Iran had a revolution in 1911. Um, and these people, unlike, say, Muhammad Ali of Egypt in an earlier generation, uh, Kemal Ataturk, uh, Reza in Iran, and then Habibullah and Amanullah in Afghanistan, they came to the table saying we need to create a modern state. Uh, we need to create a society where education is important and literacy needs to be promoted and so on. Well, Jamal al-Din uh, al-Afghani, nobody knows where he came from. Uh, his, his, he took the name al-Afghani of Afghanistan, but I don't know if he was an Afghan, most likely from one part of the Ottoman Empire or the other. Nonetheless, he was an, what he's called often an itinerant preacher. He was, you know, he's the Forrest Gump of the Muslim world in the late 19th and early 20th century. He's everywhere. He's in Al-Azhar Mosque one day. He's in Syria the next. He's in Turkey and so on. Well, what's amazing about Al-Afghani 
is that he tries to push forward um, the, the, pro, the parameters of Islam. You know, what should Islam mean in the modern world? And again, he is not unusual. Uh, in, in British India, Muhammad Iqbal is thinking similar thoughts. Um, you know, they are thinking about how to relate uh, the history of Islam to the history of, say, what becomes uh, communism, you know, the history of the left, the history of people's movements and so on. You can't allow peasants to remain in a state of, of illiteracy. You know, how does one uh, transform our societies and so on? So there was a ferment in, in that part of the world. You know, it, it should not be underestimated that people are capable of making their own, um, you know, assessment of the modern world. They don't need to import things, you know, uh, off the shelf as it were from Great Britain or France or, or, or places like that. These countries were capable of it. And what's interesting about Al-Afghani is he doesn't have an elite perspective to modernization. Modernity doesn't have to come from the elites. You don't have to learn French to be modern. You can speak Arabic, you can speak Dari and be a modern person. And I find this to be a very important theme. Uh, you know, yes, in Kabul, there was the lycée where some French, uh, French speaking Afghans went to study the very top elite. But that wasn't the entire game. You know, they created educational institutions in their own languages. They were talking about um, the broadest reform of, of inheritance laws. Uh, of equalizing marriage laws and so on. In other words, entering the domain of the family uh, to not modernize it to become like Europe, but to modernize it to emancipate women. Uh, and this was the general gist. You see, it, these were not westernizers. That's what I'm trying to say. From Al-Afghani to Ataturk, uh, to Reza, to Amanullah, these are not westernizers. These are modernizers. They wanted to modernize their own culture bring it in accord with basic democratic principles, even though this was a monarchy, you know, uh, in Afghanistan. It, it reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of days ago with Rafia Zakaria, who has just published a book against white feminism. We were talking about Afghanistan. A major argument that she makes is that one reason we failed in Afghanistan is because we were trying to export what she calls white feminism, could also call it, I guess, Western feminism, rather than allowing a local indigenous form of feminism to to take root in, in Afghanistan. Is, is this kind of what you're getting at, too? Well, you see, uh, I mean, I think that it's not even whether it should take root. It had taken root. Yeah. That's the point that this current of 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 uh, of let's call it, you know, the emancipation of culture had taken root because, look, Mitch, you said it. There were four constitutions. I mean, how do you write a constitution if it hasn't already taken root? The ideas were there. Uh, education became widespread and so on. In 1972, um, the head of government, Muhammad Daoud, who came from an aristocratic family, but basically said, we don't need a, a king anymore and, and ruled as head of government uh, under Daoud. Um, he pushed hard against the kind of very, you know, backward looking, let's call it uh, religious orientation. And this uh, produced some problems in Afghanistan because, for instance, at the School of Theology uh, in Kabul University, Buranuddin Rabani, who was a professor of theology, uh, uh, you know, joined with others to create a political party called the Jamaat-e-Islami. 
He was joined by young students, notorious names, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who's now in Kabul and will likely join the next government, Ahmad Shah Masood, who I don't know how he became thought of as heroic because he was really a gangster of a warlord uh, in the university, in the faculty of engineering. You know, they would go and beat up girls who were studying um, in, in university and Hekmatyar was known to throw acid at girls and so on. This was uh, Rabani's position. Well. Muhammad Daud basically said, no, we're going to arrest you for doing this. This is against the constitution uh, of 1964 and so on. And Ramani and others decamped to Pakistan in 1973. You know, the communist coup takes place in 1978. They decamped to Pakistan in 73 under the liberal government. Sitting in Pakistan, um, they basically were allowed to keep their guns, uh, even though in Pakistan it was illegal to have guns. You know, they dominated the grazing grounds. They created great resentment in northern um, Baluchistan and in, in Waziristan. Well, they went off there and they would Mitch, have become a footnote to world history had the Pakistanis, had the Saudis with their immense oil money, and had the United States not tipped the scales on behalf of them from uh, before the Soviets come in, you know, in 1979, uh, long before that, the Pakistanis and Saudis were funding uh, their activities and the U.S. government under Jimmy Carter began to provide military assistance. You know, when the communists come in, they send 18,000 literacy workers to go out there and conduct literacy in rural areas. Paki uh, Afghanistan had a literacy rate of 18 percent, extraordinarily low in 1978. And so Rabani and others sent their boys across the border to go and kill these literacy workers. Um, I mean, this is the kind of, of, of rooted character of the counter reaction that was, you know, would have been nowhere. When you said we should have allowed it to root, it was already rooted. This good side of history was already rooted. It had taken root. Years afterwards, I interviewed the Minister of Social Affairs in the first communist government, uh, Anahita Retebzad, and she told me how, you know, how excited they had been. Of course, there were great problems in their party. Um, you know, their party was a mess. There was faction fighting and all kinds of things. Nonetheless, idealistic students who had been part of the the student movement in the 1960s. I mean, again, Mitch, I, I don't even know how to say this to, to explain to people that in the 1960s, there was major student uppressed, uh, unrest in Kabul University. There were workers strikes in 1967, Ramparts magazine in the United States uh, published an article by an Afghan student who was then in the US. I mean, it's extraordinary how these things work. Um, this article exposed that the CIA was trying to undermine the student movements in Afghanistan. And the students took that Ramparts article in Kabul and they did a big protest. I mean, it was rooted in the soil, but it was destroyed by this alliance of the very right wing in Afghanistan. Pakistanis, Saudis, and, you know, the United States of America. This is Letters and Politics. We are speaking to Vijay Prashad, who's the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Uh, he has a piece in the, uh, he, he has a piece, this is what happens when I have a, a big uh, a bio for you, but but he does have a piece that is in Frontline, which is India's uh 
national magazine about this history in Afghanistan. Our, our time is a little bit restrained today, so I'm going to move us up a little bit. But just quickly, the British, again, in the earlier portion of the 20th century, in opposition to Amanullah and, and Soraya Tarzi, um, would support the reactionary conservatives in Afghanistan. And as we move towards, and I wanted to ask you more about the communist in Afghanistan, what did the British support of the conservative reactionary portions of Afghanistan mean in, uh, in the years that followed? You see, um, what happens is that when you support these kind of people, uh, then they don't have to necessarily... Um, you know, uh, they, they, they don't care about the fact that the state is going in a different direction. They become underminers of the state project. I mean, you know, at crucial moments, kings are assassinated by the counter-revolutionaries. Crucial moments. Um, you know, people in, in aristocratic positions who are liberals are killed off. Um, they're not, these groups don't try to influence the government. They try to intimidate it. Um, and this is a, a, a casualty of, of the support that foreign powers have given to these sections, that these sections have never actually wanted to play a liberal game. You know, it's, it's really horrendous how the United States and the United Kingdom and others talk about democracy and democracy promotion. Right through the 20th century, the United Kingdom and the United States promoted a bunch of gangsters and thugs in Afghanistan against democracy against the growth of democratic institutions you know when the communists do come to power in april of 1978 you see there's a liberal coup first i should say in 1973 uh, the uh, when muhammad daud comes to power it's a coup it's a liberal coup then there's a communist coup in 1978 five years later um, these two coups despite being coups are attempts to deepen democracy um, you know, because what did they do? Both of them will strike an agenda for land reform. Both will strike an agenda for increasing literacy and so on. That's deepening democracy. And where does the United States stand vis-a-vis -vis Daoud and vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, uh, which opens up in 78? United States stands against it. Uh, and, and with whom? Not just against it, but with whom? With people who are against democracy. So, you know, what is the cultural, um, you know, effect of British and then U.S. influence in this region? The cultural effect is it creates a culture which says that Afghans are not democratic people. And I think that's the shame. That's why we don't have public knowledge about the fact that it has a long constitutional history. Let's talk more about the communists then in the 60s, 70s and, and early 80s in Afghanistan. Um, it's not remembered well, largely not remembered well today, the communist rule of Afghanistan and also the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So I want to ask you about that. But I also so let me ask you about that first, about our, our collective memory, our, our dialogue around that period of time is actually not a positive one. Yeah, one reason it's not positive is because there is a kind of information blockade on what one is to know about what was done then. You know, uh, let's again go back before the communist coup in 78 to the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, the communists were the Communist Party, effectively, the, it's not called the Communist Party, but the Communist Party effectively is founded in 1965. There were no communists in Afghanistan 
in that organized fashion before 1965 and only 12 years later they have come to power um, something to consider uh, but when they did form in 1965 they drove an agenda again uh, for literacy for land reform um, you know they drove an agenda for women's emancipation and very key issue they began to organize in the military and in 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 the among the teachers these were the two crucial elements that they organized the military uh, middle level military cadre and among the teachers why the teachers because you see when the student struggles break out in the 1960s um the teachers are frustrated you know th th there's like 18000 students entering into education but only space for 5000 students in higher education in the 1960s this is greatly frustrating for a society if there's only 5000 people in higher education even those five were not getting absorbed into jobs those 5000 people so they went to work in the education ministry was which was an incredibly inflated in terms of number of people working there uh, institution in the 1960s there were these deep frustrations uh, in the society with the lack of development uh, afghanistan relied on international trade it relied on export of you know dry fruits like uh, raisins and dates and so on um, it relied very much even then on aid and much of the aid at the time came from the soviet union um you know and and some from the united states including in the helmand valley where the united states helped build irrigation channels and so on so the economy was in a great crisis and it's in that period that the communists begin to innovate and send people out to do land reform send people out to agitate for uh, literacy and so on when they come to power in april of 1978 this is their agenda you know it's still the same old agenda land reform Uh, literacy and women's emancipation and they drive very hard on these issues but from the first day as i already mentioned rabani and others from across the border sent their boys across to kill the literacy workers to attack this government so this government internally in convulsion uh, you know there was a faction fight between the two different sections the khalk and pancham also there were personality fights and so on um there was a problem inside their government but also they were attacked from outside at this point they asked the soviets please come in now mitch this is very interesting because for a, several months the soviets refused to come andropov who's then the general secretary of the of the communist party says we're not going into afghanistan we don't have any uh, agenda you know what would we do when we get there we'll become like an occupier soviets were greatly marked by the intervention in czechoslovakia in 68 they didn't want to repeat this and you can go and read online all the politburo discussions it's now available publicly and it's been translated by the national security archive in washington dc you can read all this stuff well eventually the the soviets did come in it was a catastrophic error they crossed the amu darya come into um into afghanistan initially they make some gains but then the us increases the support to this group they now call mujahideen these really repellent characters you know at that time dick cheney and others called them freedom fighters mujahideen army of god and remember cheney at the same time is calling nelson mandela a terrorist so it gives you a sense of who these people are but you know in that period there was a war that starts from 1979 that essentially maybe has ended now i'm not sure if it's ended now but it has gone on this whole time you are judging that communist government for months it was in power for months and yet it has been exaggerated what people have forgotten 
is the longer period of liberal and 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 left leaning social reforms which have gone on for 50 years before the communists came to power um everything is put on the communists that the communists tried to impose a anti afghan thing i reject that entirely that's why i wanted to bring in the longer history of reform it's important to see that as an afghan story not a communist story the communists are not the only ones interested in women's emancipation but they tried to deepen women's emancipation no doubt as we move to wrap up our conversation vijay prashad i i want to ask you hearing what you're saying but i still want to stay on the communist moment in in afghanistan in the 60s and 70s by asking you who was and tell me about anahita ratabzad she was a wonderful person and i had the great uh, uh, privilege of meeting her when she had gone into exile um in uh, the 1960s she was a very very important reference uh, of the women's movement in in afghanistan uh, she was a member of the of the people's democratic party the communist party uh, which was founded in 65 in 1964 she and other left wingers ran for parliament based on the 1964 constitution and she was one of four women she was elected from a district of kabul into the parliament um that same year in 65 she helps found the democratic um women's organization of afghanistan important lead organization that takes the question of literacy and women's emancipation into rural areas as well as the cities um then uh, fighting through uh, this attempt you know the daily struggles of an activist as she was um she was not able to contest the 69 election because the government kept declaring the communists to be banned they kept banning them i, I didn't mention that but they kept banning them uh, they uh, disallowed their newspaper called khalq um the people from being uh, published and so on and eventually in 60, 78 during the coup she becomes a minister of social affairs and and i went back and i read her decrees i read her articles that she wrote in kabul new times and so on extraordinary person i mean she drove an agenda which today feminists should look at and study carefully you know including the fact that men and women must have all equal rights in the family it's a very radical agenda and they pushed it hard and you know uh, she, when later when i interviewed her she said you know we felt the breath of of the enemy at our door at our neck you know from the first day we knew they were coming and she said backed fully by the united states how did we ever have a chance you know we never had a chance and she lived in germany first she went into bulgaria in exile then she lived in germany in exile and died in germany a few years ago uh, largely forgotten and i think that's a pity uh there were four women elected into the 65 parliament um i mentioned their names in the article and i hope people will go and and research them you don't have to um you know take your lessons from outside your country to create decency in the world a decency is available to all of us you know a decency is available everywhere in the world you don't need your lessons from outsiders you need your lessons from the dynamic of history it's more authentic like that you know and people like anahita ratebzad sure she was a marxist she was a communist based on the thinkings of a, of an old german you know who lived in britain and so on that was important to her but they were also afghans they also understood their own society they understood its tempos and did they go too fast 
I'm not sure, Mitch. I'm not sure. Ask that of a girl who was alive in 1978 and wanted to go to school. Uh, did they go too fast by saying we need universal education, boys and girls? I don't think so. I think they just went at the right speed. Afghanistan was ready for it then. Afghanistan is ready for it now. It's just that the bad side of history has dominated for too long. Vijay Prashad has been our guest again. Vijay Prashad is the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He has joined us for a conversation on his piece that can be found at Frontline, which is a national magazine in India. We will link to that article in on our uh, website. Vijay Prashad is also the author of such books as The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. His latest book is called Washington Bullets. Vijay Prashad, I, I thank you dearly for taking this time to join us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mitch.